Kind of scares me. All right, good morning. How are we doing? Great. My name is Frank, and I am so excited to be here this morning. Um, we've had a holiday weekend. We've had people that are out traveling, so uh, keep them in your prayers. Uh, for some reason, we're not broadcasting today, so you guys are going to get to see this. Uh, uh, I'll repost it. Just if you talk to anybody who's asking where it is, uh, they'll be able to see the sermon uh, video and audio on Frank Bible Truth. Uh, the YouTube channel. Uh, the podcast will be on Frank Bible Truth Podcast. The uh, sermon and audio probably by tomorrow will be up on the church website. So uh, they're aware of that. Now we're in a series right now called Bible 101. And it's not really what you would think a Bible 101 series would be about because we're not really talking about necessarily how the Bible was structured or how it got to us or any of those things. We're talking specifically about how do you, as a follower of Jesus, open this book, hear from God, and then obey what it says? What are the process of understanding how to read this book? Uh, said another way, how do you feed yourself, right? Because one of the challenges of being as a believer is that at some point you get to a mature part in your spiritual life and you realize that if you're going to grow, you got to feed yourself. Paul talked about it when he said, we can't live on milk forever, essentially. We have to, at some point be able to pick up this book, meet God, hear what he has to say, and then have a heart that's ready to obey. But the problem is a lot of times people just give you this book and expect you to be able to figure it out. It's like you came up out of the water of baptism and we're like, oh great, here's a book, I hope you figure it out. And yet there's a lot to understand. We're in week three now, so if you missed the first two weeks, they're available, as I said, on uh, all the different platforms. Um, but we've been talking about this process of studying the Bible. And what I'm hoping to do is teach you some things about reading the Bible while we study the book of Colossians. And it's funny because today we're not even going to open the book of Colossians. Um, but that's what the series is on. Trust me, we'll get to it. We talked about this 4C approach. Basically, it's really simple. It's content, context, connection, and conduct. And this is something I've been asking you guys to sort of look at. Con Intent is basically, what does the scripture say? Context, what did it say to the first century audience that it was written to? Connection, how do we bring that forward into our lives? And then conduct, how do we apply it? And that works for every passage of scripture that you read. We also have been talking about panning for gold. That many people read the Bible just kind of skimming the surface, not knowing that there really is gold for those who are willing to persevere. And so our job is not just to simply read the scriptures, but to understand that God has things that he wants us to see. The Holy Spirit wants to show us things when we open the Bible. And our job is to stay there and study and ask questions until we find out what it is. Now we're looking at the book of Colossians. It is one of the 21 letters in the New Testament. I chose to study a letter because I believe the letters contain some of the greatest doctrinal truths that build the foundation that Christ's followers should have. But they also contain passages that have been used to form cults, to form false religions, to misguide churches, and failure to understand how to interpret the letters of the New Testament is one of the most common reasons why those who look in on Christianity struggle. 
They see the scriptures, some of them, and they don't understand the nuances related to letters. And that drives them to see Christians and their faith as hypocritical. There's tension in the letters of the New Testament. You, you can read the historical books, you can read the Gospels, and they're fine. But when you get to Paul's writings, when you get to James and Peter, they say things you kind of wish they didn't say. Because they make you think. We feel weird about it. We know the tension's there, but we rarely talk about it. The stories of Jesus, challenging, but not really confusing. Historical narratives of the Old Testament, usually clear. But man, when you get into these letters, something weird starts to happen. We read this book looking for answers, but truthfully, it often raises more questions. Often we have a hard time understanding the answers that we do find. So there's tension. And if we're totally honest, this book is not always what we hoped it would be. We want it to be concise and clear and consistent. We want it to be wrinkle-free. We, we want it to clearly state what God desires and plans. And yet when we read it, at times it's almost confusing. Those who study the Bible learn to accept that the book has tension and mystery. Some things are just not really well understood. We become comfortable not being totally comfortable in our understanding because we know and we trust that God wrote it. There's a good deal of faith involved in reading the letters of the New Testament, and it's odd, really. You read so much of the Bible that makes total sense. You may not like it, but it's clear what happened. It's clear what God was doing. It's clear what God did and what God wants us to do. But you get to these letters, you start asking yourself a lot of questions. Is he talking to just that audience in the first century, or does that apply today? Was he talking only to the Jewish people, or was he also talking to the Gentile people, the new believers? Is the writer setting a biblical standard for all time, or are they just sort of spouting an opinion? Is the passage or instruction to remain in the first century because it doesn't really apply to us? Is this passage true for all times and all circumstances? Interestingly, that you have to study the other parts of the Bible to get comfortable reading the letters of the New Testament. I often tell people to study the Gospel and Acts and the Old Testament before ever trying to pick up a, a book, a letter from the New Testament. And the reason is you need to have a sense of the perfection and the themes and the truth in the other parts of the Bible so that when you start to struggle with the letters, you have the faith developed to understand that there are things there that we may not understand, and it's okay. You need to have the mindset that you're going to challenge, be challenged by the Holy Spirit in things that you don't understand. There'll be questions, very serious questions that are not clearly answered. People, believers, will get in heated arguments and debates. Biblical scholars will debate what happens in the letters. And like I said, you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. But that doesn't mean it's not true. The biblical truths are, always have been, and always will be true. But it's in the letters of the New Testament that you really have to trust and know God. Because honestly, some of it, none of us understand. But because we know the rest of the Bible, because we have been taught by the author, God himself, the Holy Spirit, and we understand the problem is in our understanding, not in the text. In other words, our problem with understanding the Bible is our problem with understanding. It's the limitations we have as humans trying to understand God things. 
It's not because of errors and mistakes within the text. And in my opinion, nowhere is that more evident than in the letters that Paul writes. Peter himself even said, Paul's hard to understand. Peter, 2 Peter 3.15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them in these manners. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. I love that Peter admits that Paul's letters are hard to understand. That's why I love Peter. He is so direct. But that doesn't make him wrong. It just makes him deep. You see, if you pan for gold, if you really dive deep into the scriptures, God will reveal his truth to you. but you can't skim the surface. We talked about in week one that God doesn't give up his gold to the lazy. Peter says the ignorance will twist these words to their own destruction. And then I love the last zinger he adds in there just as they do to all the scriptures. They're not just twisting Paul's word, they're twisting everybody's word. Thank you, Peter. Peter walked with Jesus and he walked on water and he had a hard time understanding what Paul teaches. But note the warning, just because they're hard to understand does not mean we're allowed to twist them or to change any of the scriptures. God wants us to wrestle with the, with the tension that's in these letters. Some things come, some understanding comes with time. Let me give you an example. When a first century audience read Revelation and the two witnesses in Revelation 11, okay, there's a story in, in Revelation 11 that these two witnesses will come and the Antichrist will eventually kill them. Revelation 11:9. For three and a half days, some from every tribe, people, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and they'll celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets who tormented them and tormented those who lived on earth. So what the writer is saying is this. There's going to be a time when everybody all over the world at the same time can watch these two witnesses and what happens to them. Now imagine you're in the first century, you'd be going, that's impossible. How could people from every tribe, every language, every nation gaze on their bodies? How is that impossible? How is that even possible? But today we don't even blink. Of course the whole world can see everything as it unfolds. Sometimes things written in the Bible will not be understood until generations to come bring understanding to it. It doesn't make it not true. It's just not understood. Does that make sense? Bible study is not easy. Some things are hard to understand. Some things written in this book for all time are for generations that aren't here yet. This book has tension in it and mystery to it, and students of the Bible wrestle with it, and they learn to live with it. So I want to get to the first point today. All of God's word is true. All of God's word is true. I never thought I would have to debate this very hard. But in our culture today, that's, a, that's even among churches, a hard thing to accept. Every word in God's book is true. There are doctrinal truths that we base our faith on, timeless truths, if you will, as true today as they were in the first century and will be forever. But then there are truths that were true only in the context of the first century. 
They really don't travel forward to our time. Some truth just doesn't travel across time. It was true for that audience in the first century. Paul taught them the truth that he wanted them to know. But that truth was not a truth for all time. It was a truth for those specific people in that particular time. And the challenge is, how do you know that? That's what we're going to talk about. For instance, we know that Paul really wanted to go to Rome when he was in Ephesus, right? We talked about that last week. He's only 500 miles away. His heart's desire was to get to Rome. When Paul turned to his friends in the first century... They would have looked at him and said, it is impossible to get to Rome in less than two weeks. It's impossible. It can't be done. And that is undisputably true in the first century. Yet today, you can make that trip in two hours and nine minutes by airplane. And if you have a fighter jet, you can do it in just under an hour. That's true, too. Both are true, but they're true in different contexts. Now, what if God told us in the scriptures that one day it could be done in seven minutes? Is God wrong? Are the scriptures wrong? Or are they just not yet to be experienced? You see, each time what is said is true. In the context of the current reader, two weeks, two hours, or seven minutes, all is true within the context of when they were written. The challenge is to understand, is that truth a truth that only applies to that group at that time? Or is that something that's going to be true forever? Second point, not every truth travels across centuries. We'll talk about that. You see, the New Testament letters are really rich in theology. Explanation, things like how to understand the spiritual gifts like tongues and prophecy and healing and others. The role of women in the church. The qualification of elders in the structure of the church, the role of husbands and wives in submission and service, how to handle conflict and fractions within the church, the sins of immortality, immorality, the bodily resurrection of believers, false teachers, idolatry, horoscopes, fortune telling, how should women wear their hair, how long should men's hair be, should we greet each other with a holy kiss, women covering their heads, the role of women speaking or teaching in church. Church discipline, divorce, lawsuits, settling disputes. And then some we tend to skip over, like baptism for the dead, the role of angels, how it relates to women covering their heads, food sacrifice to idols, imprisoned spirits. We read things in the New Testament letters. Some are easy to follow, others we don't seem that concerned about. Yet they're all scripture. It seems we should follow all of them, right? Then why don't we? I mean, if the scriptures say it, why don't we follow it? Now think about somebody looking in on the church. They come to a church service, they watch what we do, and then they go to the book and they read it, and they're like, y'all aren't doing what this says. Why is that? Why are you worried about one thing but not the other? It looks hypocritical to people that don't understand letters. Let me show you two passages. Galatians 5.19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And just so you know, the word do such things means to do, continue doing, and never stop in Greek. So compare that 1 Corinthians 
11.6. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God, but women is the glory of man. Those are both in the Bible. They're both in the letters. 1 Corinthians 14, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? There are things in the letters that just make you go, what? What are we supposed to do? If we don't follow all of them, how do we decide? It looks like we can pick and choose, yet they're all scripture. How can we ignore some and not others? Who decides? How do they decide? We don't baptize on behalf of the dead. Clearly, we allow women in our church to speak and to serve on leadership teams and to teach and do all of that while not wearing a hat. Why? Those scriptures seem clear enough. You read them and it seems like that's what you ought to do. How could you not follow them and yet demand that the scripture regarding idolatry and immorality is true? How can we have confidence that we've interpreted these scriptures correctly? It says those who do such thing will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty strong warning. We better get this right. Are you starting to feel the tension yet? The answer is in understanding the genres of the Bible. There are different types of writings in the Bible. There's poetry. Some books are narratives. Some books are parables. Some books are letters. Some books are gospels. Each type of writing is different, and each type of writing requires a different interpretation. We don't read a letter like we read the phone book. For those of you who are younger, there's this thing they used to have called the phone book. It came in white and yellow. It was delivered every year. You had to look down. Yeah, But we don't read that the same way we read a letter. We don't approach poetry like we approach a rental lease. Every genre of the Bible has to be understood in the context of what it is. When you see a book of the Bible, you need to tell yourself, oh, this is a letter. Or this is an historical book. It's like there are several games in the Bible and each game has its own rules of interpretation. If you apply football rules to a basketball game, you'll foul out very quickly. Letters are unique. If you approach the book of Colossians with the same rules that you apply to Old Testament poetry, you'll foul out theologically pretty quick. Letters have limitations that other genres do not. But there's one thing that all New Testament letters have in common. And it's crucial to know when you're reading them and trying to understand them. They were all written regarding specific circumstances in the first century, and they were all from the first century. When you read a letter of the Bible, the first thing you need to realize was this wasn't written to you. There's a group of people much like us who needed to hear from their pastor or from their evangelist or from their leader. Now, although every word in the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit and belongs to all time, 
They were originally written out of the context of the first century author to first century original recipients. That is why I am constantly trying to teach everybody what it was like to live in the first century. Because if you don't understand Judaism and you don't understand what was going on in the first century, a lot of the words they use don't make sense to us. They were brought about because of special circumstances. Something happened among this group of people that prompted their leader to write them a letter. Usually the letters address one of three things. A behavior that needs to be corrected. Something that's happening in the church that got to Paul and he's writing back saying, stop it. Stop it. Second, a doctrinal error that needs to be corrected. We saw that when we studied 2 Peter and um, we looked at the false teachers, the Gnostics that had come in the church. Third thing is it could be just a misunderstanding that needs further light. Like the Galatians asked the question, what happens to all of our relatives who die before Jesus comes back? Are, are, they, are they lost? And Paul's answering them in Galatians, talking to them about, no, here's what happens. And that leads to our third point today. They were written to them before they were written to us. In other words, these letters have an audience, and the audience is not first and foremost us. It was the church they were written to. But therein lies a challenge. In these letters, we also have to understand that we're only seeing one part of the letter. What I mean by that is most of these letters were written to answer questions, and we don't have the questions. It's like having the answers in the back of the math book and trying to figure out what the problem was. Okay, we know that the answer is true. We've just got to deduce from the letters what question was asked. Try to figure out what the problem was. So letters are a particular challenge, and you can see how this can cause problems with interpretation. It's like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. We don't have all the context. There's something going on between two groups. There's a problem or concern that they understand, but we only get a glimpse of. We're looking in. They may leave things out that they know are already known. Just like when we have conversations, we say things that we, everybody knows what we're talking about. So we're left trying to understand the unspoken. And because we have a limited experience, we have to be careful not to conclude too much from one letter. We have to look and see, is that truth validated in other parts of the Bible, or is it just in this unique letter? Which leads to the fourth point. Letters cannot mean what they never meant. Letters cannot mean what they never meant. In other words, when that writer is writing to that church about that circumstance, okay, it can't now be carried forward to us with a suddenly a whole new revelation and a whole new meaning. It was written first and foremost to that audience. All of the letters of the first century have to be read in the context of the first century. And I know I'm driving this point home hard and we're taking a while with it, but it's critical. It will not reveal a new truth to us that was not true to them. And New Testament letters are not always what we want them to be. We want them to tell us everything about a topic they were never meant to be exhaustive dictionaries of Christian doctrine. They were letters from a pastor to people that he loved, trying to encourage them to do better. The intent of the author is not to fully explain a topic. It's to help them change their behavior. 
It's so important to understand that when we start looking in these letters for answers to our questions, the answers we're reading were actually answers to their questions. And we don't know what the questions were. We go to New Testament letters looking for answers to infant baptism, divorce and elder qualification, remarriage after divorce, the role of women in the church. We must understand that the answers that we're seeing are probably not the questions that we're being asked. So when it comes to the letters, we have to be very careful to make sure that we're not reading into the text something that's not there. For example, the church in Corinth was the church gone wild. It was crazy in Corinth. Prostitutes from the local pagan temple had infiltrated the church. They wore headdresses. They spoke loudly. They, they interrupted the services. They had money for pearls, which designated them as a temple priestess. Obviously, Paul had been asked a question from the congregation. What are we supposed to do? These women are coming into our church, and they're starting to try to make our church seem like the temple up on the hill. What are we supposed to do? Now, we don't know exactly what question was asked, but it's pretty obvious they were having a problem with women in their church. Many of our women have pearls and wear them all the time. In, that, in Corinth, only people that could afford pearls were temple prostitutes. It was like their name badge. The question could have been anything. How do we deal with our congregation that's being totally disrupted by these prostitutes? Or the question might have been, how do we reach the prostitutes for Christ when they're constantly drawing attention to themselves and interrupting our speaking? Or maybe they ask, what should the role of women be in the church for all time? We don't know what the question was. We just have the answer. So when we're reading these letters and we see these things, what do we do? 1 Timothy 2.8 I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she'll be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. We could spend years on that passage. Are we to always pray with our hands lifted? Is it only men who are not to quarrel and have anger? What about women? No braided hair, no gold, no Sunday best dresses, pearls forbidden in church. Paul starts this off by saying, I desire. Is that his opinion? Is that his preference? Or is this a truth for all times? Are we really going to take advice on telling women to be quiet from a man who was never married? Are childless women not saved? She will be saved through childbearing. Is that true? Does that align with everything else we see in Scripture? What do we do with this? Well, the answer is we pray. God tells us that the Holy Spirit will teach us all things. When we have challenges or questions with the text, we might as well go to the author who wrote it. Imagine if Paul was here today and we were able to ask him, hey, what did you mean by this? He'd tell us, right? And we'd all go, oh, that's what that was about. Oh, I didn't know that. Of course, that makes sense. 
Well, it turns out the author of the book is waiting for you to sit down with him. He's the Holy Spirit. He knows all truth. He teaches all things. He shows you all things. And Jesus says he'll bring to you remembrance of all things. So the idea that we just pick up this book and start putting our interpretation on it is ridiculous. The author is waiting for us to understand it. And one of the things we have to understand is the first place we look when we don't understand what the Bible says, when we get into these situations where we're confused, the very first place you look is in the Bible itself. Scripture interprets Scripture. If something is true for all times, it'll be repeated throughout Scripture many times. The things God wanted to make sure that we knew are repeated throughout Scripture. So when it comes to the letters, you can't take one verse out of context. You just can't do it. Unless you see that one verse as part of an overarching theme throughout the Scriptures. Scripture interprets Scripture. We look for biblical and see if it's compatible. If we don't find it there, like baptizing for the dead or women never being allowed to speak in church, or men disgraced for having long hair, then we can attribute that to a cultural context of the first century and leave it there and not camp out on it because we don't see it anywhere else in Scripture. Or Scripture definitely says other things. So it may have been that people in that church in particular were being told, here's what you need to do in this unique circumstance. So for instance... In Corinth, there were also male prostitutes. We don't know a lot about them, but did they have long hair? Is that why men were told not to have long hair? Does that apply to all men of all time? So things that aren't validated in other parts of Scripture have to be left in the context of the Old Testament or in the uh, first century. There's plenty in the Bible that's crystal clear, and it gets repeated all the time. Let's look at that Timothy verse again. I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands, without anger or quarreling. Are we to always pray with our hands lifted? If our hands aren't lifted, is the prayer invalid? Do we see that in other scriptures? Not always. Okay. Then it must be an attitude that stays in the first century. Not a physical demand of all men who pray for all times. What about women? No braided hair? No gold or pearls, no designer labels. Do we see that in Scripture elsewhere? No. But here's what we do see in Scripture, throughout Scripture. Women should dress modestly, profess godliness and self-control. This truth in Scripture is across all Scriptures. Women should honor God by covering their bodies. I can find that in multiple passages throughout the Bible. I can't find through multiple passages throughout the Bible that they shouldn't braid their hair or that they shouldn't wear gold or pearls. Those may have meant specific things to that specific audience. But the overall truth of the passage is women should dress modestly. They should honor God with the way they dress. Braided hair, gold pearls, fancy clothes may have been specific to women in that particular church. Dressing like a local prostitute and coming to church is not being godly. Today, we might have used tank tops and miniskirts and Heels, I don't know, something like that. So let's not get lost and forget what we're looking for. We're looking for God's gold, truth that occurs across multiple passages, truths that are true for all time, truths that are eternal and cross-cultural. 
God's truths are true for all times, all people everywhere. If it was true, it'll be true in the past. Today, it'll be true forever. It'll be true when we're in heaven. Those are the truths that we base our theology on. Jesus is God. Jesus died and resurrected. We're sinners separated from God. Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit to teach us. God's word is true, every word of it. Those are truths that you live and die on because they're true for all time. There are hundreds of truths stated clearly throughout Scripture. We're to be sexually pure. Fornication, homosexuality are sinful. Sexual relations outside the covenant of marriage are sinful. These are truths that are crystal clear throughout Scripture. They never change. God's people can marry any race but need to marry other believers throughout all Scripture. We are to love other people. We're to be selfless. We're to avoid greed and anger and jealousy and pride Crystal clear throughout all of Scripture. We're to have self-control. We're to avoid things that are dishonoring to God. That's throughout all of Scripture. We're to worship only God. Idols are sinful and detest God. Worshiping money, ourselves, others, other religions, all sinful. And again, all clear through Scripture. There's no debate. We're to believe and know that Jesus Christ is God, that he came to earth to die for our sins, that he paid the price. He was our substitute. We accept him in faith. We don't earn it. He's the only one worthy of worship at all. Again, crystal clear throughout all of Scripture. Camp out on what is central, not what's peripheral or temporary. We need to major in the majors. So the Christian doctrine expressed in the letters has to be clearly supported in other letters, other writings, and other parts of the Bible before we can say that is exactly how they should be interpreted. Be careful if you cannot find a truth in the letters supported by somewhere else in the Bible. If you're going to make that the foundation of your faith, be very careful. Because if it was important enough for somebody to mention once, God knows we're not that bright. He's going to repeat it several times. So let's look at an example and compare some passages in Romans. We're going to look at obeying authority, showing honor, and greeting each other with a holy kiss. Romans 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 13, 1. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 1 Peter 2.13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, initially, this seems pretty clear. We're to obey the government. We're to, we're to honor the emperor. We're, we're to live subject to whoever's in authority. It's, it's pretty clear stuff. And, by the way, it's repeated throughout Scripture. It's not just in one letter. But when we start thinking about it, we have to start scratching our heads a little bit. How far are we to go here? Are we directed to obey the government in every circumstance? What does it mean if you're persecuted? What does it mean if you can't gather together for worship? 
What if they're godless? What if they're supporting an agenda that doesn't align with God's word? What if they're ruthless dictators? No authority except from God, really? Those who resist will incur judgment. How are we to interpret that? If we were to always do this, the Jews never would have left Egypt. They'd still be there in bondage. Moses would have obeyed Pharaoh. Daniel never would have gone to the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego never would have met Jesus in the fire. Paul would have stopped preaching the gospel and obeyed Nero. Hitler would have exterminated the Jews. And most importantly, Jesus never would have gone to the cross. Now remember, Paul's the one that's writing this, right? Submit to authority. Paul got kicked out of every town he ever went to. They ran him out. They stoned him. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was chased down and he kept preaching. He was not one known necessarily to submit to authorities no matter what. So as a church, we often have decisions to make. How do we approach scripture and find God's direction? The question is not what the government tells us to do, but rather what does God tell us to do? And if those align, great. But if they don't, I've said it before that God trumps Trump. The way it is, that's what we're called to do. Do we obey this scripture, this truth in all circumstances? What about this one? Greet one another with a holy kiss. All right, let's practice that. Everybody stand up. Why are we not doing this? It's in scripture. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Well, we're social distancing, but is that what we're supposed to do? Are we being disobedient? Is it sinful when I see you to not greet you with a holy kiss? Okay, love one another with brotherly affection. That's cool. Submit to authority. That's challenging. Greet each other with a holy kiss. I don't know about that one. I have a hard enough time hugging people. And unless you want to go around kissing everyone, you better need to understand the letters in the Bible. To know which truths are central to the entire message of the Bible and which truths would be left in the first century. All of Scripture tells us that we're to love one another with brotherly love. That is true in multiple passages across every part of the Bible. We look at greeting with a holy kiss and we can't find it anywhere except in this one scripture. It's not a constant theme throughout scripture. It was their cultural experience of how they greeted one another. Perhaps today we would write high five everybody for me. Friend me on Facebook. It's not a command to our church today. It's something that was unique to that culture in that moment. We can all relax and get back to hugging. It's okay. But let's go deeper. Because the questions we have to answer aren't simple questions like just how do we greet each other. There are some very serious questions that we need to answer. We have to search for gold. And I think it helps to walk through the process of understanding this and see how it relates to applying it. Both honoring others and obeying authority are timeless truths in the scriptures. There's no debate there. They weren't just for the first century. We're told throughout scripture that we're to obey authority. That we're to submit to the people God put ahead of us. It's a timeless truth. We have to accept that God can remove anybody from authority if he desires, and that everybody in authority was put there by God for his purposes. And unless we're 
instructed to personally sin, we're to obey authority. At that point, we have to make a decision to place God's commands above those who are in authority over us. But it's pretty clear through Scripture, unless you're being asked to sin, you're to submit to authority. And it doesn't matter what we think about it. Resisting authority placed by God, Paul tells us that we're resisting God's authority and we'll be judged for it. If God doesn't want someone to be in authority, he can change it. Pretty simple decision, right? God says to obey the authorities. The authorities tell churches to stop meeting in large numbers. Some even tried to legislate the closing of churches. Seems like a no-brainer. We're supposed to obey the authorities in all circumstances. I can tell you that doctors knew COVID was coming before other people knew it was coming. Before the first U.S. case was announced, I began praying about what we should do because it was obvious this was coming. Began searching the scriptures, looking for answers. What are we supposed to do if this becomes a pandemic? You guys know that I'm uh, I'm kind of a historian. I love studying history. I love studying medical history. I love studying Civil War history, and I just love history. And I know what the pandemics did in the early part of the 19th century. I wanted to find out what God wanted us to do. And I'll be honest, I wanted to go remote. It would have been so much easier. Home on Friday, Saturday night, Sundays for weeks at a time. Would have been so easy. Honestly, it would have been very nice. Record the sermon on Monday, be done for the week. But again, what I want or think doesn't matter. The question we have to ask is, what is God commanding us to do? I have to admit, I had doubts. What are the chances that God would speak directly to us about COVID-19 and whether or not we should keep meeting? I was expecting to go to God and confirm that it was okay to stop. That during this pandemic, we should just stop. We should protect everybody. So I prayed. But here's the deal. I told God I'd do whatever he directs us to do before I ever asked the question. What do you want us to do? I know what I want to do. And see, here's our tendency. Our tendency is, I know what I want to do, so I'll find a scripture that supports it and I'm done. You're not done until you hear from God on what he wants you to do. You don't go to scripture to find a scripture to validate what you've already decided to do. So I began looking at scriptures and prayerfully considering what God told us about meeting together, particularly when the government was against it. It's not hard to find. Paul didn't stop, Jesus didn't stop, and Peter didn't stop. Peter, Acts 5, 27, and when they brought them before the council and the high priest questioned them, we strictly charge you not to teach in his name, and yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from a burning fiery furnace, and he'll deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Daniel 6, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. 
He willingly disobeyed the leaders. And you may be thinking, okay, all right, but those are like real sins. Those are like big deals. Worshiping idols, not praying to God. Those are clear. Those are easy. This is just about meeting together and whether you're okay with our church meeting online or not. Where in the word do we find that he directs us on what to do in these circumstances? We're not going to stop meeting. We're going to meet online. In each of those biblical moments, Paul knew, or God's people knew what the leaders demanded and refused to do it because they believed it was a sin. The leaders were demanding that they disobey a clear truth in God's word. So as I kept praying and searching, I asked God, but what about right now? What if we are open and we get everybody infected? What if somebody dies? You see, God, I'm a doctor. That's not going to look good. Seriously, COVID-19 spreads by close contact. It's deadly for the elderly and some others. Clearly seems like a good thing to avoid close contact. Church can be done online, right? The government authorities were strongly encouraging churches to not hold services. Never really became a law of the land because all the churches submitted. In two weeks, we shut down every church in the whole country almost. It was incredible. If you'd have told any of us two weeks before that in two weeks all the churches of America are going to be shut down, you'd have said there is no way that could happen. No way. It seemed to be the noble, honorable, legal, humane, sensible, and yes, patriotic thing to do. But deciding to close the worship of God, the teaching of the word, the fellowship of believers, the place of refuge for people during a time of crisis is not a decision to be made lightly. Particularly since 100 depends on us for food and showers and shelter and spiritual guidance and almost all the other services in town were closing. Not to mention that deciding that telling God's people that we shouldn't meet is not exactly in the Pastor 101 handbook. Forget whether the government has the legal authority to actually mandate the closing of churches. The only thing that really matters is what does God want? What's he mandating? So our church had a decision to make. And I have to admit, I was fearful. Fearful of not doing what God wanted and fearful of being the doctor pastor who let people get sick on his watch. So I did what I'm supposed to do. We pray. God, you got to show us what we're supposed to do. You're the only one who can tell us to stop meeting together because it's your church. I don't have the authority to close this church down. I don't have the authority to say not to meet because it's not my church. We're only going to do that if Jesus says to do it. So Jesus, I need to hear you. Your command is my command. What do you want us to do? And that's when God took me to Hebrews chapter 10. It often happens that way. You'll ask God a question, you'll be stumped, you won't know what to do, you'll pray, you'll get frustrated, people will start telling you you need to make a decision, and then all of a sudden, God just puts a passage on your mind, it's the Holy Spirit just telling you, hey, we're about to dive deeper, we're going to go deeper because you've persisted, you didn't just look superficially, there's something I want you to see, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I remember being blown away by this verse. Several reasons. First of all, the context of the verse is don't shrink away when you're fearful. Don't shrink in fear when times get uncertain. Second, God is directing that we should not stop meeting together. That it could become a habit. And that we needed to keep meeting because people are going to need to encourage one another. It's going to be tough times. We need to social distance, but we need to see each other. God says many are going to neglect to meet. That means they're going to choose not to. Not that they're going to be unable to meet. That's not what he says. He says they're going to neglect to meet. It's going to become unimportant to them. You know what church attendance has done since COVID and the predictions for how many people are just going to walk out of church? It's estimated that every church is going to shrink by over 30%. People can just watch online. But believers are to stir one another. They're up. What, for what reason? To love, to share love, and to do good works. People are going to need our help. People are going to need believers in the pandemic to help them, to care for them, to, to take food to them, to not be afraid of what might happen to them, but to actually care for the people who are freaking out and maybe just maybe show them Jesus. And later in this passage, we're going to see that God says that those who isolate will shrink in faith. Third, the scripture says we're to hold fast to Jesus without wavering because he's faithful. You see, I let my eyes get off of Jesus. Start worrying about what would people say if half of you guys died because we had meetings. And I'm a doctor. How would that look for me? And finally, this is a unique verse. It's one of the very few in the Bible that applies more today than when it was written. Remember how I told you that they're written to the first century and we got to bring them forward to this century to see if they still apply. This scripture is the opposite. We don't have to ask if this truth travels forward to us. God tells us, I'm writing this to you, Remnant. I'm writing this to you, Churches of America, in 2020. How do we know that? Because he says, even more as you see the day approaching. We are closer to Christ's return than any humans who have ever breathed on this planet. And God says, when you get close, when you get to that day, don't stop meeting. Okay. I felt God telling me, you got to trust me on this. You got to trust me with your church. Yes, I know. There are 100 to 200 homeless people who walk through here five times a week. And they're interacting. They can't not interact. And, and there are people that you know that you love who, who are going to need to keep assembling together. And there's other people in your church that are older and have diseases and they need to be separated. Why don't you just let me handle this, God says. So I asked God to show me the goal that's in the verse. Let's look at this verse again. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there's an obvious question. Remember I told you you got to interrogate the text? Is meeting online the same as meeting together? That's a really critical question. Because here's the deal. If we're meeting together online, is that just a 21st century way of doing church? 
What does God say about that? The easy answer is, yeah, that's good enough. Let's go. But what does it really mean? You see, when we're digging for gold, we got to stay in the river and pan for a while. Is a worship service something that we can watch or something that we do? Can we keep our hearts engaged if we don't gather together? Throughout Scripture, it's rarely good for God's people to be isolated. Isolation opens up somebody for spiritual attack. Satan loves what isolation does to the people of God and what it does to sheep. So the truth of this passage, the gold, really depends upon understanding the Greek word for meeting together. That's what it boils down to. God, what did you mean when you said we were going to meet together? That as the days drew near, we need to meet together. God, what did you mean by that? Is meeting online enough? Do you know that the Greek word that's used for meeting together in that passage is only used in one other place in the Bible? It's a very unique word. The Greek word is epsanue. It's where we get the word synagogue. It's only mentioned twice in the New Testament. They had a word for synagogue, but they didn't use it. They had a word for church. They didn't use it. They had a word for the church services. They didn't use it. They used this word. And here's the interesting thing. This word, the two times it's used, is used to talk about eschatology. Big word just means end times. Okay. This, 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 this word is used twice in the Bible, and both times it's talking about what we're to do in the end times. It's a unique word. The Greek audience would have noticed immediately that he did not use the word you would expect him to use for meeting together. He chose a unique word. Now, when Jesus said, when two or more are gathered in my name, he used a completely different word. When he said we should come to the temple for worship, completely different word. This word, this word is used here. We're commanded to gather together and it's used only one other place in the Bible. You want to guess? First Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, chapter 16. Let me read it to you. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. And the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left will be, wait for it, caught up meeting together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, there's that word again, encourage one another with these words. This word was uniquely used to talk about the rapture of the church. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not logging in online for that moment. And there were plenty other words they could have used, and they didn't do it. And I believe the goal in this passage is God is telling, look, you need to meet. You need to be open when the church is open. You need to be available for people who need to be fed. You need to keep sharing the gospel during desperate times. You need to get over your fear, and you need to stay open. And that's why I told people from the very first week, Based on Hebrews 10, we will not be closing our doors. We will social distance. 
We'll, we'll obey the laws as we can. Even when they said we might get down to 10, I said, I'll preach six or seven or eight or nine or 10 times. I don't care. God told us to keep the doors open. I don't know what God told other churches. I believe based on scripture, he's given the church an answer. So this unique word meant gathering together during the end times. It only occurs in Hebrews 10 and 1 Thessalonians. And he equates meeting together in the same way we will meet together in the clouds. So how important is it that we're together physically? The same as when we'll be physically at the rapture. Meeting online might seem good enough, but I believe God's word tells us he disagrees. There are a good number of people who have not agreed with our decision to stay open. We've been called unpatriotic, uncaring, reckless, arrogant, unkind. We no longer have a Friday young adult group because of this. Many whom we love have moved to other churches. Some in our church are not coming back because they did not agree with us staying open. Most of them quoted to me the passage out of Romans about submitting to authority. They said that meeting online was meeting together. I couldn't get one of them to sit down with me and go through Hebrews 10 because they didn't want to know. Yet God has spoken clearly and there's reason, no, re no reason to debate it. We're going to stay open. It's not reckless. It's not uncaring. It's not arrogant. It's not unkind. It's just God's truth. Who finds gold in God's word and then throws it away? If you're not going to obey God's truth, you might as well not be a church. Keeping remnant open was a huge faith step for me. God seems to have protected us from COVID. Our homeless population has not seen what we thought we'd see. Our church has not seen what we thought we'd see. God could change that tomorrow. We could all be dead in a week if he wants it. Can you imagine if all the churches over all America had stayed open and nobody who went to church had gotten COVID? That would have been interesting. We have to endure till the day ends and is near. At the beginning of this, I told you the passage. The context of this verse was not to shrink in fear. I want to read you the whole passage because I can't just read you the verse and not go backwards. Therefore, brothers, speaking to believers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. In other words, since we now can go through the curtain to the Holy of Holies based on the blood of Jesus, and you know that's true. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of our faith. In other words, we're not backing down from anything. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Frank, you're backing off in fear. He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up for love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another as we see the day drawing near. It's because of the blood of Jesus that we can stand firm. Jesus is the priest over the house of God. He's the priest over remnant. And then as if to drive the point home again, the writer of Hebrews in verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence which has great reward. 
For you have need of endurance so that you've done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. And then he goes on and he says, but we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we're those who have faith and preserve their souls. You and I have been given confidence through the blood of Christ. It's a reward. It is gold. We're to act like it. We're to walk in it. We're to have that confidence. How do we do that? We meet together and we encourage one another with acts of love and service. Now, we're not stupid. I've said from the very beginning, if you're sick, if you're elderly, if you have a chronic disease, stay home. We love you, but we don't love you here. We want to see you again. Stay home. If you take care of somebody who's in that category, stay home. But if that's not you and you're staying home because of fear, I believe God is challenging you to take a step of faith because he asked me to do it too. So let me close with this final point. I know I'm running over. The letters are full of Christian doctrine and they're critical to our understanding. Failure to follow the timeless truths in these letters carries significant eternal consequences. We cannot just superficially read this word. We can't decide what we want it to say, find a verse that says that, and then hold on to it. You cannot pick and choose what you want to follow. You have to ask God to show you the truth, knowing that you'll obey it, even if it isn't what you want. In fact, most of the time, what God asks you to do is not what you want to do. We allow women to speak and teach and serve and lead in our church because they do so throughout the New Testament scripture, and they do so in Jesus's ministry. Jesus highly valued women, as did Paul and other apostles. Many of the comments in the letters related to women were targeting a specific group of a specific culture and a specific problem. You must allow the Holy Spirit to help you understand truth. The overwhelming majority of God's word is crystal clear, and we have a hard enough following what we know we should be doing. The letters may have limitations, but God has given us the entire Bible to use. He himself is waiting to teach us. The things he wanted to make clear, he makes very clear. And if something's not clear, we can be okay with that. Now here's the last thing. God made this book a challenge to understand. That, that used to frustrate the snot out of me. Why don't you just tell me what you want me to know? Why don't you just write a verse that says, oh, by the way, as the times come towards the end, keep meeting together like we're going to meet in the clouds at, at the uh, rapture, and it's important, don't back off. Hey, you guys in the 21st century, make sure you keep, why don't you just say that, God? But during my seminary training, I began to understand all God has ever wanted is for us to commune with him. And he uses this book to make it happen. You see, it's when you open this book and you ask the Holy Spirit to teach you that God begins to reveal to you where your heart is related to the study. Do you really want the truth? Are you really going to obey it if I share it with you? Are you going to obey it no matter what if I share it with you? Or are you just here trying to fit me into what you want to do? You see, God very quickly identifies who's really panning for gold and who's just hanging out in the water. Because these books, these letters have tension and mystery, we have to slow down. 
It forces those who are serious to spend time with God. And his book is not clear and concise because he wants you to spend time with him. You have to depend on the Holy Spirit. When we open these letters, we're going to feel the tension. And it's okay. Because that tension is the Holy Spirit saying, are you ready for me yet? Because your understanding has brought you conflict. Why don't you let me fix that for you? It's all about the relationship. And that relationship changes everything when it comes to Bible study. Let's pray. God, I thank you that this book holds gold. Your word even says that it's more valuable than the finest gold. God, sometimes we just treat your book like it's just another book. Like it can be something that we just read and use when we find something that's pithy or something that we can say that fits what we want. But that book is your truth. And your truth extends to all eternity. You're not asking for our opinion, you're asking for our obedience. So God, help us to obey you even when it doesn't seem right. Help us to obey you even when we're afraid. Help us to obey you even when it can personally cost us. God, we love you. We thank you for the truth in your word. We thank you that every question that we ask, you will answer for us if we seek it. Thank you for all that are here. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.